Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would open up a Bible to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. We're going to read some, I think, some very important verses in this chapter that I need to just kind of get set before our minds right here at the outset as we get ready to do some Q&A for the month of September. Uh, if this is your first time here for Q&A night here at Lakeside, you'll find out pretty quickly that these kinds of lessons have a little bit different flow to them, a little bit different rhythm, a little bit different structure to them, uh, at least compared to a normal sermon. And that's because these sermons, these kinds of lessons are really kind of all formulated around questions that have been submitted to me, either by our members here, sometimes by our kids here, sometimes even by folks outside of this congregation. Sometimes those questions have to do with a particular text of Scripture or something in the Bible. Can you explain that a little bit? Sometimes the questions have to do with apologetic issues. You know, here's some things that I'm trying to figure out why do we believe what we believe and being able to give a defense for those things. And sometimes those questions have to do with just moral and spiritual dilemmas that the Bible doesn't speak explicitly and specifically to. And so what we're looking for is we're looking for some some principles and some direction biblically that will help us to make some wise decisions. And it is that third and latter category that really best describes the questions that are on tap for us this evening because I've got two questions about religiously affiliated activities. And I apologize for just the the ambiguity of that title. These two questions, I do think they fit together, but I just couldn't figure out the best title for it. I told Cody to just put out on the sign, Q&A night, and just leave it at that. So we're going with this, and maybe it'll become more clear what I mean by that as we progress along. Got two questions, one of which has been on the back burner for a long, long time, and another of which that you're probably going to, when you first hear it, you're going to think, boy, now that's a strange question But it's actually a good question because it's going to kind of unlock and open the door for us to answer just a bevy of other questions that I get from time to time. Questions that I think are good for us to think about and give some careful consideration to tonight. Appreciate you being here. Glad that you're here tonight. Hope you've had a good afternoon. Looking forward to closing out this evening tonight in the Word of God. There is a reason that I asked you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. And that's because Paul says some things in this chapter that we're just going to need to get locked into the forefront of our minds. And really the very first verse of the chapter gives us a clue as to what the chapter is all about. In Romans 14, there in verse 1, Paul says there, as he's urging and talking to these saints in the church there at Rome, he tells them in Romans 14, the end of verse 1, he tells them to not quarrel over opinions. I like how the NIV renders verse 1. It says, don't quarrel over disputable matters. I say that because I believe the things that we're going to be talking about tonight, they would fall under that heading of disputable matters. That is, these are matters that God has not legislated about one way or the other. He hasn't given a specific thou shalt or a thou shalt not about. These are matters of personal conscience, matters of personal judgment, which means then that our conclusions and our convictions on these things, they're probably going to vary from person to person. If we were to be able to kind of go around the room at the end of this lesson and just kind of poll everybody as to where you stand on these things, I think we would just have a variety of different responses. 
Now I try to, I try to space these kinds of questions out. I try to not do these more than a couple of times a year, even though I get lots of questions that are kind of in this vein. But I try to space these out over the course of a year because I do not ever, ever want anyone to think that this pulpit is an instrument for pressing opinions. It is not. I will this evening present to you biblical principles that certainly have persuaded me to lean in a particular direction. But at the end of the day... You're going to have to draw your own conclusions. In fact, Paul says that in this chapter. Drop down to verse 12. Paul says in verse 12 of Romans 14, So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. You're going to have to decide for yourself on these disputable matters. You're going to have to give your own account before the Lord when it's all said and done. Which means, verse 13... It means we're not going to pass judgment on one another. That the Lord gives us liberty in these kinds of matters to have differing convictions about these sorts of things. And so as a result, we're going to respect one another. We're going to say, alright, that's the conclusion you've come to? Okay, my conclusion is different, but I'm going to respect you for that. And I hope that you're going to return that to me. We're not going to get all up in arms just because somebody else holds a different conviction than what mine is. Furthermore, since we're still here in this chapter, drop down to verse 22. That also means that I'm not going to push my opinion and force everybody to believe exactly as I do on these things. Rather, verse 22, the things that I believe, my convictions about these things, I'm going to keep those things between myself and God. Now that doesn't mean that I don't ever talk about these things with others. We're certainly going to talk about them tonight. But it means I'm not going to go shoving that on other people. Try to railroad that. I don't have to convert everybody to my way of thinking on these matters. Because again, what kind of matters are we talking about? We're talking about matters of opinion. Disputable matters. These are not matters of doctrine and scriptural truth. Which leads then to that final verse in the chapter. Where Paul says there in verse 23, he says, whatever does not proceed from faith, And as he uses the word faith there, he's not talking about faith in God or faith in Jesus as God's Son. He's talking about your personal conviction on that matter. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In other words, what Paul's saying there is he's saying, whatever your belief is about a certain matter of opinion, make sure that you don't violate your conscience. Again, remember, we're not talking about matters of right and wrong as God has determined. But if you do something that violates your personal standard of right and wrong, then Paul says, Paul says we've got a problem there. You actually have committed sin because you violated your conscience. And so while we certainly want to respect the conscience of others, of our brothers and sisters, don't forget to respect your own conscience and make sure to operate within the constraints of your conscience. Now, With that rather lengthy introduction, and I actually want to put these key ideas, those verses that we just read, I want to put those ideas from Romans 14, I'm going to put them on the screen, going to leave them there for the duration of the lesson. Let's now look at the questions that are before us. And you're probably going to get a chuckle about this first question, especially considering I've given such a long introduction, very serious introduction from Romans chapter 14. But I hope by the end of the question, you're going to see that it was worth our time to entertain this question. And the question is this. Can a Christian participate in yoga 
since yoga has pagan roots and connections to Hinduism. Now I gotta tell you, when I first got this question, and I'll just ease your minds, it wasn't from anybody in this room. When I got this question, I really was not aware of what a controversial subject this is. And maybe that's even surprising to you that this is really an issue to people. But I'll just tell you, you go home this evening and you Google the words yoga and Christianity, I'm telling you, sparks are going to fly. You will be flooded with the amount of religious material that has been written about this subject. There are people who have lots of things to say about yoga and blending it with the Christian worldview because yoga, yoga is an exercise. It is a form of stretching that comes from the Near East and it was used as a practice in ancient times to bring oneness, oneness to the mind and to the body and to the spirit. In fact, the word yoga means to yoke or Union. There's that idea of the oneness. Now, while the exact and specific origins are unclear, everybody does seem to agree that yoga did come from some pagan culture in the past. And if it was not the Hindu religion, well, the Hindus have certainly co-opted it and they have refined it over time. And they have, in fact, used it as a spiritual practice. It's a practice that's designed to, to clear the mind, to have union with all souls, to everything being God, and all other kinds of Hindu doctrine goes along with that. And so when we hear that, and we see these kinds of things, and the symbols, and all the stuff that goes along with that, it does cause a red flag to go up. I would hope it would at least cause a red flag to go up. And let's go, okay, hold on. Let's stop and think about this for a second. That is important. That this was part of the worship of of some pagan god? That this was the part of some false religious system? That maybe when I do yoga, are you saying that I am worshiping a false god? In fact, I read several articles that said just that. I read articles that said, if you do yoga, you are unintentionally worshiping the gods of Hinduism. That you're going to get drawn into Hinduism. Or you're going to get drawn into some other ancient Near Eastern mystical religion. That if you do yoga, you're going to lose your soul. Well, let's wait a minute there. Just stop and think about what is yoga? What is just the essence? When you strip it all down, what is the essence of yoga? Well, yoga, as best I can tell... It's just stretching. That's all it is. When you tear it, it's just stretching. It's exercise. It's stretching in different positions. It's stretching your muscles. It's things that are designed to help you build flexibility in your physical body. And the truth of the matter is, I'll just say it, there is nothing inherently religious about stretching or building flexibility in your body. You can stretch without thinking about Hindu deities. You can stretch without building oneness with the great consciousness and all that other Hindu jargon. Would you look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, those of you who are like me, who don't like to work out, this is our verse. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, This is verse number 8. Paul says this, 1 Timothy 4 verse 8. 
He says, for while bodily training is of some value, exercise is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, it seems to me that if yoga was this dangerous, potentially soul-damning practice, I think then this right here would be the exact place where Paul would say things like, well, you need to be careful about certain kinds of bodily exercise, certain kinds of bodily training, because if if you do this, whoa, that's going too far. You've done something that's pagan. You've done something that's going to damn you to hell for eternity. Paul doesn't say that here. Paul doesn't say anything along those lines. In fact, I'll say this as well. The idea that by doing yoga, that somehow you are unintentionally worshipping a false god, I'll just say, you can't unintentionally worship something. You understand that? that that's, that's just not possible. Worship requires the mind. Can I show you that? Look in 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it is there that we learn... That worship requires not only a right attitude, you need to have a good attitude, have a good heart, but worship also requires that we engage our minds. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, as he talks about the worship assemblies that was going on there in Corinth, in verse 15 of that chapter, he says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. If you sat in the pew today, as we've gathered here on the Lord's Day, and if you did not engage your mind while we were singing those songs, or while when the brothers led us in prayer, or whenever the Lord's Supper was passed earlier this morning, or if you didn't engage your mind while the Word of God was being taught and proclaimed, did you worship? No, you did not. In fact, you may have even came into this building and you may have even with your body, you may have even done some, some worshipful postures. You may have stood up at all the right times. You may have sat down, bent down, folded your hands, closed your eyes. Did all of that kind of stuff in an outward kind of way. But if your mind was not engaged in what we were doing, did you worship? No, you did not. And so I'll say again, you can't unintentionally worship. You can't unintentionally worship in here. You can't unintentionally worship in a yoga studio unless your mind is focused and directed on the object of that worship. If you do yoga, I don't know if anybody here does yoga. I'm not even really sure about that. But if you do do yoga and your mind isn't thinking about Vishnu or Shiva, relax. You're not in danger of worshiping those false gods. Furthermore, while I am certainly aware that yoga does seem to have its origins in ancient, pagan, uh, religious practices, I am also aware that what once had a pagan meaning in the past, that that can change. And it's possible for that thing to no longer have those connotations. You know, I'm not really sure why some people are just so determined to point out that if something has uh, some kind of origins in a pagan culture that maybe happened hundreds of years ago or even thousands of years ago and it was maybe once associated with a false religion or if it was associated with something bad or it was associated with something evil, well then, well, that just makes it automatically bad forever and it can't ever change. 
Really? Let me ask you this. What about the word Thursday? Thursday is a Norse word that honors the Norse god Thor. Does that mean when you say to somebody, hey, I'll meet you for lunch on Thursday. (laughs) You're a worshiper of Thor over here honoring Thor in your words. No, come on. We recognize about that. We recognize that that meaning, yeah, maybe several hundred years ago if you talked about Thursday, yeah. People maybe did think about Thor's Day is what it would have been called. That may have been what people thought about. They thought about you worshiping the god Thor. But we recognize that that meaning has evolved. It's changed over time. It's, it's lost that connotation largely. Did you know this? I found this out just this past week. Did you know that Aztecs, that they used chocolate in their religious ceremonies? That's right. Aztecs believe that drinking chocolate gave mortals the wisdom of the gods. Well, there you go. Hattie, you're going to have to give Daddy all of your chocolate because I don't want you to be involved in Aztec worship. I don't know if she'd be all for that. I think she'd be opposed to that. Well, when you hear that, well, that's just, just silly. You know, I was banned chocolate from my life because at some point in some place, yeah, it was associated with a false religion. Listen, words and ideas and things and practices, they evolve and they change over time. Things that maybe once were associated with a false religion don't necessarily, and I emphasize necessarily, they don't necessarily have to have that same connotation later on. In fact, the Bible speaks to that specifically. Would you look in 1 Corinthians 8? In 1 Corinthians 8, I think this is probably the best parallel that I can find to what we're talking about here. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 about the idea of eating meat that had been offered and sacrificed to an idol. Now, whoa. I don't know about this. Eating meat that had been offered to an idol. I'm not into idol worship and so I don't want any of that meat. That might be what we would be inclined to say. But look at what Paul says about that. Look at 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 4, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. We know that. Maybe if I was to take that verse and put it into the vernacular of this sermon, maybe we would say, as to yoga, which has been associated with Hindu gods, We know that Hindu gods have no real existence. I don't think I even needed to preach that to you this evening. I think you knew that already. Yoga, again, it's just stretching. Just like Paul says. He says that meat offered to idols, it's just meat. It's special about that meat. It's just a piece of food. And if you can keep that straight in your mind, then I'm going to tell you that yeah, I think it's okay to do yoga. However, I will say a word of caution here. That if you're not able to keep that straight in your mind, if when you go to the yoga studio, or maybe you're doing yoga in your house, and your mind is just filled with all kinds of Hindu teaching, and Hindu doctrine, and Hindu worship, and Hindu gods, and there's all kinds of conflict in your mind, then I would suggest that maybe you shouldn't do that. In fact, that's what Paul goes on to say. Stay in that chapter. Look in verse 7. Talking about that meat offered to idols, he said in verse 7, However, 
Not all possess this knowledge. Not everybody understands that meat offered to an idol, that it's just meat. And so he says, some, through former association with idols, they eat food as really offered to an idol. And so their conscience, being weak, is defiled. If your mind is going to wander into all kinds of pagan and Hindu sorts of theology while you're practicing and doing that yoga stuff, then that's probably that's probably your conscience hollering. That's your conscience ringing a bell and it's saying, hey, I'm bothered by this. This doesn't set well with me. And I'm going to suggest to you what Paul suggests here, and that is don't defile your conscience. But for everybody else, and I'd almost tend to believe that probably is most of us, if yoga for you, if it is just stretching, then go for it. Do all the downward dog that you like. Do all the wounded warrior that you didn't think I even knew those, did you? Yeah, you do all those yoga poses that you like. Do it all, do it till your heart is content. I don't want to do it. I'm not interested. I'm not, I'm not that I don't want to do it because I think it's sinful. It's not that I don't want to do it because my conscience is bothered by it. I don't want to do it because I think I just would be weird doing all that yoga stuff. But I'm not passing judgment on anybody else who chooses to do that. You choose to participate in that, hey. I'm going to respect you and I'm going to respect your judgment about that. And I'm going to assume the best out of you. I'm not going to immediately assume, well, I'll tell you what. She's over there doing yoga. She's going to be a Hindu any time now. I'm not going to think that. I'm going to expect the best out of you. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. Now, having said all those things about yoga, can you start to see the application to just a host of all kinds, similar other things, that Christians often ask questions about. And I've gotten several other questions, and I'm really just going to kind of address all of them in a blanket way right here. Because really this question was not just about yoga and about its relation to Hinduism. You can really fill in the blank with anything there. Anything that has pagan origins or pagan roots, or anything that has some kind of connection to a false religion. For example, sometimes people ask about... Halloween. We're getting close to Halloween trick-or-treat time. People ask about that. Should Christians be involved in Halloween? Should they get dressed up and go trick-or-treating and go to haunted houses and that sort of thing? Don't you know, if you study the history, Halloween has pagan origins. Or sometimes people ask as well, what about going to a hospital? What about going to a hospital that maybe is associated with a particular religious group that doesn't teach the truth? Maybe a, a hospital that's associated with a, with a denomination, like St. Joseph's Hospital. When you trace that back, that's connected to the Catholic Church. Or Jewish Hospital, what about that? Is it okay to use the services that those things provide? Can a Christian enroll in a college that maybe has some affiliation with a religious group? Like, for example, can my son go to Notre Dame as a student? Notre Dame, that's connected to the Catholic Church. In fact, could you go and attend a football game where Notre Dame is one of the participants? After all, they're connected to the Catholic Church. Well, the answer to all of those questions and a host of others just like it is, you're going to have to decide for yourself. You're going to have to decide that for yourself. You're going to have to ask yourself questions like, is my participation in that? Is my involvement in any of those things... Is that going to result in maybe me becoming a pagan? Is that going to result in me becoming a Catholic? 
Is that going to result in me becoming a believer in some false religion over here? I don't think that necessarily that's going to happen. But I suppose it's possible. That's why each one of us, and I'm included in that, we're all going to have to search within our own hearts and within our own minds, and then we're going to have to act within the boundaries of our own conscience. I, personally, I don't have a problem going trick-or-treating. I don't have a problem using a hospital that is connected to a particular denomination somehow. I don't have a problem going to a sporting event that maybe is affiliated with a religious group. Maybe you do. And you know what? That's okay. That is okay. I will say this though. If your objection to yoga or Halloween or a denominationally connected hospital, or any of those kinds of things, if your objection to those things is on the basis that you don't want to be involved in any way whatsoever with something that is false, something that is erroneous religiously, then I'm going to have to ask you just how consistent are you about that? Just how consistent can you be about that? Because I must tell you, practically... Everything around us has been touched in some way by people who have different religious views than we do. I was t- the pews that you're all sitting in right now, those pews were constructed and we purchased those from London Church Furniture. They make quality pews. They build and they supply church furniture, not just for churches of Christ. They supply church furniture for denominational churches. Somebody right now is probably thinking, whoa, are you sitting in this thing afraid of what might happen to me if I do? Well, come on. Jesus said that we are to be of the, in this world, but not be of this world. And what Jesus recognized is that at least on some level, we're going to have to interact with the people of this world. That's necessary. Evangelism is not possible if we completely just divorce ourselves from everything that has been touched by the world or touched by false religion. Jesus wants us to be involved in some way with people who are not His people. And that means then that you and I, we're going to have to decide individually as to where we draw the line on those matters. And then once we draw that line for ourselves... We're going to have to respect each other. And we're going to have to not pass judgment on another. If you do differently about that, that's your decision. And I'm happy that you're confident in that decision. Now, some of those ideas that we just addressed in that first question are going to kind of bleed over a little bit into this second question. And we'll address this one a little bit more quickly. And the second question is this. Can a Christian listen to religious music that has instrumental accompaniment. And to those of you that are note takers, I'll go ahead and tell you, there's not going to be anything else put on the screen. That's going to be it. I really just want you to, to listen to what I'm saying because I don't want to put something on the screen that somebody's going to come away thinking that, well, that's, that's doctrine. That's what we're going with. I, I want you to just please be very careful about the question, first of all. I want you to notice that the question is not, can a Christian listen to instrumental music? Any kind of instrumental music. That's not the question. Nor is the question, can a Christian worship with instrumental music? Let's just go ahead and grab the verse that I know many of you are probably thinking about. Look in Ephesians 5. 
In Ephesians 5, let's just put this verse firmly in play. In Ephesians 5, this is verse number 19, where Paul says this, in Ephesians 5 and in verse 19, he says that we are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We often point to that passage to show that we believe God authorizes a specific kind of music in worship. And that kind is spelled out just very clearly in verse 19. That kind of music is singing. Acapella singing that emanates from the heart and then flows from our lips. I want you to notice that nothing in the text gives authority for instrumental music in our worship to God. And by that same token, nothing in the text says that it is wrong to to listen to or to enjoy instrumental music in just kind of a general sense that you have to listen to a cappella music all of the time when you're by yourself and in your car and at your home. It has to be a cappella. That's not what the verse says. This text sets the pattern and it sets the example for how we worship God musically. If you want to worship God in a musical way, Ephesians 5.19 sets that standard. I would point out, though, that nothing in the text limits that worship to just the assembly of the church. Do you understand that? We can certainly worship God in the assembly of the church. And actually, I think Ephesians 5.19, that's actually the context of what's going on there. Because he talks about addressing one another. That's certainly talking about a congregational worship assembly. But this is not limited to just a congregational worship setting. You realize we can worship God outside of the assembly of the church in certain ways. That I can sing praises to God in here when we're all together, but I can also sing praises to God when I'm out there by myself, when I'm in my car, when I'm in my office, when I'm all alone. I can do that. And the pattern that Ephesians 5.19 sets forth and Colossians 3.16 and all the other verses that go along with that is that if we are worshiping God musically, whether it is in the church or whether it's off by myself somewhere, God has set forth how He wants that done. God wants that to be done by praising Him with our voices. We praise Him in singing. Now, realizing that, I think that understanding, that's what causes us to have some concern here. And I think that's what prompted this question. And that's what this, this question is, the person who gave me this, they're not the only person that's ever given me this question. I know lots of people have asked this question. But those understandings, that's what causes us to be concerned about the idea of listening to spiritual or religious songs that have some kind of instrumental, mechanical instrumental accompaniment. The question would be maybe... Can I listen to K-Love? You know the K-Love radio station? Plays lots of contemporary Christian music. Can I listen to that when I'm driving in my car? Can I pop in a CD that somebody let me borrow? Maybe of the you know, Bill and Gloria Gaither and they're singing their song because he lives and they're singing that and it's got all kinds of musical accompaniment, instrumental accompaniment. Can I listen to that? Well, maybe the first question that I'm going to ask based on the principles that we've already set forth Maybe the first question I'm going to have to ask is, I'm going to ask, well, when you do that, are you worshiping? You need to ask yourself that question. 
When I listen to that, am I worshiping God? If I listen to that song, and in fact, sometimes not just listening, but sometimes listening then leads to leads to singing. I start joining in with that. The question is, am I worshiping God? I'll go ahead and just say, if your answer to that question is a definite yes, that yes, when I listen to that, I am. I know myself, I am worshiping God. Then I'm going to tell you, you need to stop that. Because Ephesians 5.19 sets the pattern. God wants to be worshipped in song, singing. Musically, it's to be done with singing. If, however, your answer to that question is, well, well, I don't know. I'm not really sure if when I listen to that, if I'm really worshipping, then I'm going to suggest you just need to think about that. You need to think about that more. You need to probe that a little bit. When I hear maybe a, an instrumental uh, rendition of amazing grace, can I listen to that and think the heavenly thoughts that that song provokes? Can I do that without it being directed to God as worship? I'm not telling you what the answer is to that question. I'm saying you're going to have to decide that. I, I know that in my own life, there are a variety of things that pass through my consciousness that make me think spiritual thoughts, but I don't consider those things as being worshipful. Do you understand what I mean by that? I, I, I can see maybe a, a scene in a movie. Or I can read something in a book just written by some secular author that will make me think of, of heaven or it'll make me think of a, of a biblical principle. Maybe it'll make me think of God Himself. And I personally, I can draw a distinction between those thoughts and the things that I offer to God as worship to Him. Others though, others might struggle with making that distinction. And I think that's especially true whenever we talk about music. Because music, let's just be honest... Music is very unique. And I think that's one of the great things about God making it possible for us to worship Him in a musical way. But music has a way of just pulling at our emotions. You know, when we sing the songs that we sing, does it not play on your emotions and how you feel about God and about Him and about His Son? Sure it does. And so there is that pull. And before you know it, we might be pulled as we're being pulled along with that song. And maybe it's got some instrumental accompaniment. And our emotions are taking over. And before you know it, there's, there's not that distinction anymore. And when we talk about being able to make that distinction between the things that come in my mind and the things that I am intentionally offering to God as worship, maybe the people who would struggle the most with making that distinction would be our kids. I think that is a tough one for kids, especially little kids, for them to understand the difference in those things. And so actually maybe for those of us who are parents, maybe the answer to this question here, it might actually be very simple for us because we've decided that we don't want to confuse our children about the kind of music that God wants us to worship Him with. But I also realize that at the end of the day, that's not going to be that simple of a decision for everybody. You're going to have to use your judgment. You're going to have to consider maybe your influence and how all of that affects your decisions on this question and all kinds of other questions. I want to be clear. I am not the music police. 
I will not be searching through your vehicles after services this evening to see where all of your preset stations are on your radio. That is not my concern. That's not for me to be deciding about. Furthermore, I want you to know that my reluctance to just give a flat-out ringing endorsement of listening to religious music that has instrumental accompaniment, my reluctance about that is not somehow meant to be just a stamp of approval for you to listen to every other kind of music. That's usually where this conversation goes. People say, well, Josh, doesn't seem like you're all that high on listening to religious music that has instruments in it. So are you saying we should just listen to all kinds of filthy rap and country that talks about cheating on my wife and drinking beer and rock star music and fornication and all? Are you saying that? That's not what I'm saying. I trust that you're going to employ moral, biblical principles in all of your entertainment choices. I take that as a given. But on this, you're going to have to think about and you're going to have to consider these things for yourself. You might be thinking at this point, Josh, I'll tell you what, that is the biggest cop-out, non-answer I've ever seen. But I am admitting to you that this is a tough question. I am not going to stand up here and just give a blanket, do not ever listen to religious music that has musical accompaniment, because if you do, you're going to be sinning. I can't say that. There's so many variables here. What about if you're listening to the radio? Especially around 9-11, I think it got played on the radio a bunch. What if you hear that song by Lee Greenwood? God bless the USA. God's talked about in that song. Is that a spiritual song? Is that a religious song? I don't know. It might be to some people. You need to decide about that. What if maybe you go to the opera and they start playing You don't even really know. Maybe they're singing in some different language that you're not even aware of. But you hear in the opera, they start singing Handel's Messiah. That's an amazing sounding song. Well, if you realize that that's a religious song, a spiritual song, should you get all your stuff and leave? What if you're in the store at Christmas time? And you hear, they play over the loudspeakers. They're playing Joy to the World and Silent Night. And it's got all kinds of musical, instrumental accompaniment to it. Better get my stuff and get out of here. I'm going to be sinning against the Lord. You can't stand up here and say that. I will tell you, though, that my ideas and my convictions about this particular issue, they've evolved over time. They have. I've been on this side and then to this side and then back to this side. And I almost think right now I'm kind of, I can see arguments both ways. I'm still thinking about that. So can we just agree that we're going to bear with one another? Can we agree that we're going to employ those principles of Romans chapter 14 that we're, we're not going to cast judgment on one another? Instead, we're going to be patient with each other. We're going to allow each other the opportunity to study these things to grow and to mature, to maybe come to a better understanding about where we ought to be. Can I close in Romans 14 again? Would you look there one more time? In Romans 14, I really think, I really think the most important verse in this chapter is kind of in the middle of it. It's in verse 19. Because this is the, here's the, here's the takeaway stuff. This is the stuff that those folks in the church at Rome, it's the stuff they needed to be doing. They needed to put into practice immediately. Romans 14, look in verse 19. There Paul says, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let's do that. We'll come to our own decisions about that. And in the meantime, as to what we do collectively and together, 
We're just going to do the things that are going to make for peace with one another and the upbuilding of one another as we try to help each other to go to heaven someday. It is absolutely true what Romans 14 says there in verse 12, that each one of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. Are you ready for that moment? That moment, that day could be, it could be tonight. The Lord could come this evening, and in that moment we will stand before Him in absolute final judgment, and in that moment we'll have to give an account. Are you ready for that? Have you prepared yourself for that moment? If you have not, then we are extending the invitation of the Lord to you right now. The Lord has been very gracious to give you this moment, this time, allow you to live to this present day so that you can have the opportunity to be reconciled to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're ready to repent of your sin, to confess Jesus as God's Son, and then be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, all things are ready for that to happen tonight. Brother or sister, if there's things in your life that are amiss, and you recognize, well, I'm not really ready for that moment when i got to give an account of myself before God then let's fix that. Repent. Make whatever changes need to be made. Let us pray with you and encourage you and help you so that all of us, collectively, we can be ready for that moment when we stand before the Lord individually and have the opportunity to be invited into His heavenly kingdom for all eternity. If we can help you to serve the Lord or serve the Lord in a better way, would you come forward and make those wishes known while we stand and while we sing?